It's interesting because I, I think that the, the gap exists because companies don't yet understand the opportunity. I think of women as the, the largest, the largest unaddressed market in the world. Like women drive all of purchasing, right? Something like over close to 80% of purchasing decisions are made by women and carried out by women, but products and services aren't designed for them. And I think that once companies understand the gap between that and the fact that less than 2% of funding on an annual basis is going to women and 0.2% is going to women of color. I mean, I think the list of women of color who've raised more than a million dollars is less than 20 people. And that's not a year, that is like over the last 20 or 30 years, right? That's ever, which is, you know, incredibly shocking. But I think that once companies understand the value of that arbitrage and that there is a huge, huge opportunity to be made by selling to women and doing it in ways that are smarter than they have, they'll all absolutely start rushing in to capitalize on products and services. Welcome back, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed the summer break. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Innovation and technology seldom benefit women and men equally. The gender gap in innovation prevents women from becoming both developers and consumers of certain products and technology that addresses their needs. The World Economic Forum predicts that it will now take 135 years to close the global gender gap. Current trajectories towards gender equality will not create the world that we want. Innovative thinking is required to find new and creative and impactful ways of breaking trends to accelerate the achievement of gender equality and women's empowerment. When it comes to innovation, current approaches tend to adopt a male lens by only considering and centering the needs of men or only engaging men in the actual design process. Consequently, many products that we have today were never designed with women in mind. And while there is increased attention on the gender gap in innovation, it's not enough. What we need is a gender responsive approach to innovation. And that means going beyond acknowledging and raising awareness of gender gaps to really making sure that men and women's and individuals who don't identify with either of those gender roles have their experiences equally integrated in the design of innovative products and services. And that due consideration is given to how gender norms, roles, and relations might limit the innovation process and associated benefits for certain individuals. Joining us on today's episode is Danielle Kayembe, a female futurist and serial entrepreneur with a focus on projects at the intersection of women, innovation and impact. Her expertise in technology, blockchain and global economic policy makes her a frequent speaker at the Consumer Electronics Show, South by Southwest, Blockchain Unbound and the United Nations, to name just a few. Through her company Greyfire, Danielle has an established track record of mentoring startups and advising large corporations on identifying overlooked and underrepresented initiatives. On this episode, we'll unpack how to close the gender gap in innovation and ensure that future innovations don't leave anyone behind. 
Innovating for gender equality requires radical rather than incremental change. We need to rethink the way that problems are defined, the way that priorities are identified, who is engaged, how they are engaged and the way in which solutions are delivered. Since women best understand the challenges that they face in their daily lives and the barriers they experience with regard to gender equality, they are in the best position to identify the solutions to these challenges. The problem is that women are often excluded from the innovation process, even when it's them that hold the first-hand experience, as Danielle explains. When you look at kind of the universe of products and services and ideas, whether it's existing products that we've used for years, even products that are sold or marketed to women, they're actually not designed by women, right? So even something like a maxi pad <laughs> or a tampon was designed, you know, 80 years ago by a man. Things like breast pumps were designed by I don't know, farm, milk farmers or something like it's, it's like the, the history of so much of the things that women use are actually quite interesting. And so I realized that there was this gap and women were designing products that met their specific needs. And this is so different from kind of where we've been historically, because so much of what we interact with has been designed by men and for men. And so if you're a woman and you're walking through the world, you are experiencing points of friction that a man may never be aware of because the world is designed for their comfort and they assume everyone else is comfortable. They never think about it. So I'll give some really simple examples. Something like a cell phone is designed for a man to use one-handed and fit in his pocket. And so if you're a woman, your hand is on average a couple centimeters smaller, shorter. And so you are going to drop your phone more, break it more. And you're going to, your experience is going to inform you that you are clumsy. So a lot of women think that they're clumsy, but the reality is that their phone is actually designed for a much larger hand. And as phones have gotten larger and larger, you'll notice that women in your circle might have developed things like carpal tunnel. They may have the rings and knobs or hooks on the back of the phone because you need two hands to use it. You need a way to use it one-handed. So all of those are, are, you know, kind of intermediate fixes for the real problem, which is that, you know, it's a man-sized phone. And there are other great examples. Another super simple one is a door. So if you're a man and you go in and out of a building, you never think about a door. But if you're a woman, that door is actually designed for the tensile strength of an average man. So as a adult woman, I've had to use my full body weight to open revolving doors. Just to try to use one arm to open some doors is incredibly difficult. And so, you know, that's another kind of very simple example where women are used to that discomfort, right? Of like, I'm, I'm wearing a pair of heels, I'm carrying a computer bag and a suitcase and something else and struggling to open a door. And we're just used to that, used to that discomfort. But you can dig into almost every type of product, whether it's technology, virtual reality, almost any kind of, you know, set of products and services. Um, there's multiple things wrong with, you know, things like iPhones where the AI has not been trained to recognize your face. If you're a woman, if you're a person of color, you actually are paying a 37% premium for a product that does not actually protect your information. There's so many, so many examples there. 
2011 study out of the University of Virginia found that even when both women and men wear seatbelts, women are nearly 50% more likely to be seriously or fatally injured in a crash. This was supported by further studies all confirming the gender gap in motor car safety. One of the key reasons for this is that crash test dummies are modelled on the male body, which is hugely problematic for women, especially pregnant women. Here Danielle unpacks what so many companies get wrong when it comes to inclusive innovation. I think a lot of what happens is that people who design tend to be tinkerers, right? So they have an idea, they make ask the people around them who very often look like them if they think it's a cool idea. And those people will say, yes, it's a cool idea. Let's build it. Tinkers are a little bit different from kind of innovators and entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs and innovators have a very kind of market-dependent iteration process where they are interacting with an audience and getting feedback. And essentially, there's an iteration process where you are improving and uh, kind of testing the product and constantly pivoting if you find that it doesn't fit. And a lot of companies focus on, you know, maybe it's engineering, maybe it's design, but they tend to have tinkers who don't speak to an end user or an end user audience. I think the, the second piece of it is that companies don't tend to be inclusive and they don't tend to have design teams that are inclusive or led by women or led by people of color. So you are not getting that full range of perspectives and input and feedback about a product or an idea, even from people that could be in the room helping to shape that. And then I think the last piece is that, you know, when you design, I think we tend to leave values out of the process. And one of the most important things is actually defining what is kind of the belief system that is underpinning what it is that you're creating. So if you were creating something, let's say a piece of clothing for women without looking at a value system and you're like, I'm just trying to solve X or Y. If you don't have a value system, you're not going to think about the importance of something like body neutrality or body positivity, because that would actually inform the conversations about how that piece of clothing would make someone feel, who are the types of people who would have access to that piece of clothing, the types of people who are able to pay to purchase that piece of clothing, right? So having a value system that defines who your audience is, what you believe about them, what you're trying to accomplish as part of the innovation process is incredibly important. And so many of the values that companies are now defining and saying, we believe in inclusion, we support women, all of these things, that has to actually come into the innovation process in a very real way. Because it actually, it defines who's at the table and it defines who has a voice. And so to me, that is actually the first thing that I start with before I build anything, is I define the value system that's part of that process. There's a substantial investment gap impacting women entrepreneurs. 
For example, reports have shown that in the UK, male entrepreneurs are 86% more likely to be funded by venture capital than their female counterparts. Perhaps the gap is so stubborn in part because so few investors are female. In 2014, Babson College in the US reported that only 6% of global venture capital partners were women. Here Danielle shares why the gender gap in innovation is ultimately bad for business. It's interesting because I, I think that the, the gap exists because companies don't yet understand the opportunity. I think of women as the, the largest, the largest unaddressed market in the world. Like women drive all of purchasing, right? Something like over close to 80% of purchasing decisions are made by women and carried out by women, but products and services aren't designed for them. And I think that once companies understand the gap between that and the fact that less than 2% of funding on an annual basis is going to women and 0.2% is going to women of color. I mean, I think the list of women of color who've raised more than a million dollars is less than 20 people. And that's not a year that is like over the last 20 or 30 years, right? That's ever, which is, you know, incredibly shocking. But I think that once companies understand the value of that arbitrage and that there is a huge, huge opportunity to be made by selling to women and doing it in ways that are smarter than they have, they'll all absolutely start rushing in to capitalize on products and services. There's so many incredible examples. I think a very recent example would be um, the makeup industry and what's happened in, in beauty. So I think historically you've had the beauty industry that said, hey, we don't sell a full range of shades for darker skin because those shades don't sell. And they've never really done the deep research to understand that audience. And they had a huge gap in data, right? And they had a huge gap in understanding how to communicate to that audience. And you had Rihanna, who I think it was about three or four years ago, released the Fenty makeup line. And it is actually the fastest growing makeup line in the history of makeup. So to put it in perspective, a lot of more people, I think, are familiar with Kylie Cosmetics, which did, I think, about $400 million in sales. And I think it took them 18 months. Fenty hit their first $100 million in the first 10 days that it was in market. And then it, I think it, it hit a billion in sales maybe either earlier this year or some point last year. I think it took Tom Ford about a decade to reach half a billion dollars. And that was considered Estee Lauder's fastest growing brand in their portfolio. And before that, Bobby Brown took 25 years to hit a billion dollars. And that was kind of the previous, like, you know, really wonderful brand in that line. And so what Rihanna did was not only look at shades, but understand the difference in like the undertones of the audience, right? So if you put certain colors with certain skin types, you have to understand that it can wash it out if you're not careful about combining reds and yellows and all of this. And so she, they really went into the science of what looks great on these skin tones and really expanded that range with strong data points. And that is really what drove the quality of the final product. And so what you ended up seeing, and this is one of my favorite kind of <laughs> sets of data, is that you know when you look at the beauty industry, there are only four lines 
that are the top performers. So customers who don't purchase from these top four lines only spend about $70 a year on makeup. So if you buy from these four top brands, you're spending more. So Kylie customers spend $181 a year. KKW, so Kim Kardashian, they spend $278. And Kat Von D, they spend about $300, $350 a year. Fenty customers spend $471 per year on average on makeup. So not only is it the most profitable, but she's also has the most profitable set of customers that are making the largest range of purchases. She proved that not only is there a market and a need, but she was also able to build loyalty very quickly and get kind of the largest share of customer purse in that market. So I think that often, you know, the gap is about data the gaps in not having gone deep enough to understand a customer and understand what they need and not really pulling as much of that information together as you can. Yes, it's about diversity, but it's about the the fact that having a more inclusive team and a more a process that is informed by more voices is going to help you gather the best information and you're going to ask questions that you didn't ask and get answers that you wouldn't have expected and you're going to build better solutions as a result of that. So what happens to brands that refuse to consider or meet the needs that all women might have? They simply cannot survive. A great example of this is Victoria's Secret. The brand has been struggling for years with its exclusionary sizing, outdated angels and designs that many argue are created with the male gaze. To compete, Victoria's Secret have had to completely overhaul their approach and cater to the diverse needs, experiences and desires that all women have. Here Danielle shares more on the gender gap in innovation and the very real cost to businesses. We have so little data and understanding of women that the gap is massive. You know, the gap is massive. Think of all of the Think of the size of the lingerie industry, right? It's got to be over $50 billion or something. But it wasn't literally until Third Love came out and they gathered, I think it's something like a couple hundred you know, million data points on women. And it wasn't until then that they said, hey, women have mismatched cup sizes and women need different shades of nude right? Like if you think about most bras, it was black, white, and nude, whatever nude was, but nude, that, you know, kind of shade of pink wasn't nude for everyone. They very much designed a product that you think you look at this entire industry and you think, Hey, they know a lot about what women want in women's bodies, but they'd just been designing to please men. And so you're looking at a $50 billion industry that had very little information on women besides just basic sizing. And even that sizing wasn't inclusive. So Third Love has kind of come in and eaten Victoria's Secret lunch in a lot of ways, as has Aerie, right? And it took a few years, but you've seen Victoria's Secret very recently made a complete about face. And there was a famous letter that the CEO of Third Love wrote to Victoria's Secret saying, listen, 
it's not about what our women look like. Our women are real women. They're firefighters, they're mothers, they're, you know, service women. And our products are about serving them and meeting their needs. Think about the fact that it's mostly men who are deciding which ideas get funding. Mostly men whose ideas are funded. Mostly men who are designing products, even when those products are specifically for women. With predominantly only one gender in the room and at the table, think of all those lost opportunities to identify new ideas, to improve and to innovate. To compete, survive and thrive, companies can no longer afford to exclude women in their innovation and design processes. And the good news is that for many organisations, adopting a gender responsive approach shouldn't be that hard. In a nutshell, we're looking for businesses to acknowledge and value women as consumers and end users of products. This has to start with recognising where an apparently neutral design, idea, product or process isn't really neutral, but is in fact male. What we're really talking about here is for businesses and individuals to become conscious decision makers who proactively identify whose needs are not being considered or designed for when creating any product and then proactively and effectively close that gap. A business which includes women as designers in the innovation cycle obtains feedback from women throughout the process and ensures that the environment is one where the ideas women bring are heard, valued and implemented will be much better placed to ensure that their products meet the needs of their female consumers. It just stands to reason. And of course, the same can be said for closing the innovation gap for any underrepresented group or community. To me, this beautifully illustrates the way in which inclusion isn't just the right thing to do, but also so clearly and directly translates to tangible business benefit. It really is a win-win opportunity. Thanks again for tuning in. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please reach out at thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. If you want to support our work, then please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get yours. Listener.